1: It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. There's much to talk about on the arts and culture scene here in San Diego. I'm Jade Hindman. Here's to conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. San Diego's Soda Bar is celebrating 15 years. We'll hear from one of the
2: co-owners. Soda Bar at this point is really like a club that's like run by musicians for the most part.
1: Plus, author N. Scott Momaday shares his cultural experience of living on a reservation. And Beth Accomando speaks with filmmaker H.P. Mendoza about his movie on grief and loss. That's ahead on Midday Edition.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.
1: Welcome in San Diego, it's Jade Hindman. Our arts and culture show takes us to Soda Bar where 15 years of putting local indie bands on stage is being celebrated. Then we'll talk to an author showcating the diverse cultures of Native American people. Then a filmmaker explores grief and pain in a new movie. This is Midday Edition, connecting our communities through conversation. A beloved small music venue is celebrating a new milestone. This Saturday, Soda Bar is kicking off its 15th anniversary with a concert that will feature San Diego bands ranging from pop, punk to progressive and indie rock. Corey Steer is the talent buyer and booker for Soda Bar. He's also a co-owner and... uh, He's also a co-owner of the venue. He joins us now to talk about the upcoming concert and what this milestone means to San Diego's music community. Corey, welcome. Thanks for for having me. So glad uh, you're here with us. So let's start with the anniversary concert. Who will be performing and and what can people expect to see?
2: Yeah, we have uh, Weatherbox, uh, North County Rock Band, along with Positioner and Future Crooks. Uh, and you can expect uh you know it's a it's an indie rock show it's a special night for us they're all really close friends of mine so yeah'm I'm, I'm just so stoked that it came together
1: awesome and do you have any like song recommendations from the bands that will actually be performing for weatherbox
2: so I would say even like the song it's called uh Adams smash the Uh, it's the first song on their debut record. Uh, it's just like uh, indie rock, like jam. You know, they're one of my favorite bands, like ever out of San Diego, so. Crashes into me!
1: All right. Well, tell us more about Soda Bar's history. I mean, where did it all get started?
2: So it all got started um, in, what is it, 2008, uh, November 2008. And it was initially uh, owned by the same owners of Bluefoot that's in North Park. It was just like kind of like a sports bar kind of music. They didn't really know what they were doing. And then eventually we just kind of went full on music, maybe Two to three years into it, uh, I became one of the owners, and uh, we've just been doing the same thing ever since. Great. And you've
1: you've been booking talent at Soda Bar for more than a decade, right?
2: Right. Yes, it has been a while. It's been like uh, 13, 14 years, something like that. Yeah. Uh,
1: where did your journey get started now that you're a co-owner? <laughs> yeah, uh,
2: it got started just being a musician. Uh, i a drummer, played in a, a bunch of bands, you know started kind of like when I was in middle school, high school, and, uh, you know, eventually just got interested in booking those bands myself. Then that got into like, okay, how can I do this going forward, you know, and make it my job. And so I thought, well, I might as well just book shows here and, you know, do that.
1: And you don't just, you know, book bands, like you said, you're a musician yourself and, and have been in a couple of bands like Cults, uh, which is an indie pop band. And you were also part of Weatherbox, who will be performing at Saturday's concert. Can you tell us more about your background as an artist?
2: So you did some research.
1: Yeah. Ah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I did play with Weatherbox for a couple years. And, uh, and it was amazing. Like Brian Warren is a good friend of mine. He's he's the lead singer. He, he is Weatherbox. And yeah, I, I mean, I loved it. And as far as you know, the other bands that I played with, it's kind of just been a progression from, you know, one to the next, you know, Mrs. Magician, cults. I still do, you know, play here and there, but uh, booking shows and running this club is kind of my full time gig now.
1: Yeah. What cult song do you have the most fondest memories of?
2: Most fondest memories. Probably a song called uh, You Know What I Mean. It's, it's kind of like a pop ballad. Every time we'd play it, like, you know, the crowd would go crazy. So it was, yeah, that's probably my favorite song. <laughs>
1: So do you think that experience of touring and being on the road shaped how you approach your work today?
2: Oh, yeah. It was totally crucial. You know, we got to play, like, so many venues, like, small ones, you know, all the way up to theaters, like, through the years. And so I really got a sense of how, you know, venues run and, you know, how to do things right. And then to also see how things are done incorrectly. So, you know, like, Soda Bar at this point is really like a club that's, like run by musicians for the most part. So, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, uh, you know, the
1: acts, of course, again, range from up and coming bands to more established artists. What do you look for when you're booking a band?
2: Um, You know, there's just a big range. We work with a lot of booking agents. And so, uh, you know, we really trust them and lean on them for, you know, like for any of the national acts that come through. Uh, As far as, you know, local bands, they're super essential. We just listen to a lot of music. You know, we just try to book the bands that we that we tend to like. You know, indie rock bands, electronic bands. Uh, we kind of book the whole spectrum. And this has
1: been a really strange and difficult few years for live music and nightlife. What have the
2: past few years been like for you? It has been... Pretty, pretty weird, Uh, you know, getting back to work after having, you know, almost a year and a half off. It has been, it's been good. 2021 was strange. 2022 was really big. Like everybody went out to shows like it was probably our biggest year ever. And this year has been kind of up and down. So can you give us a
1: temperature check on the small venue landscape right now? How are other venues faring like the CASBA maybe?
2: Casbah is totally trucking along, it seems. Uh, you know, I talk to Tim often and, you know, they just, they're like top of the line. You know, they're I think they're doing really well. I think some of the other venues, it's kind of up and down, like as far as, you know, just people like having the money to go out and spend on entertainment. I think sometimes they have to be more selective because things are just more expensive now.
1: Yeah. And I would imagine you do a lot of coordinating with other venues and musicians. How does that work?
2: it's kind of, you know, it's the day-to-day job. It's, um, it's the never ending, <laughs> you know, work's never done because of that. We're constantly, you know, booking, you know, show advancing, uh, promoting, marketing, you know, it's just like a, a, every day it's a hustle.
1: You know, it's, um, it's been notoriously difficult to get tickets to big shows nowadays, as I'm sure you know. So how is this affecting indie acts? Are more people turning to indie shows? I think that
2: a lot of people are spending money on the big shows. And so it has been affecting like the smaller growing artists as though, you know, there hasn't been as much money going around as there maybe was even a year ago. So I think that people are going to the smaller clubs a little bit less than they used to.
1: And, you know, you've probably booked thousands of shows by now. And it isn't just... The soda bar that you've booked at. You're presenting at other venues too. So
2: has there been a band that's just really surprised you on stage? On stage, I mean, I think the band that you know, especially from around here, that has like really popped is The Sacred Souls. They like they're just like an incredible band. And uh they're from here in San Diego. We had them do a residency right before the pandemic, it was like January 2020. And then through the pandemic, they just grew, got gigantic. And it's just been such a pleasure to watch them just get to the top of the ladder at this point.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and tell me about that, you know, because getting to the top of the ladder can be tough, in particular for some of the local bands. What surprised you about how um, some of our local bands have been able to grow in this space and in this art?
2: I mean, it's, it's so funny. It's like, as, as a band, you just kind of have to like, you know, consistently put out music and like consistently create content and you just kind of put it out there into the ether and then it just kind of sticks or it doesn't. And so you can be super talented and it not work out or, you know, I, I feel like there's some sort of luck involved because there's been so many great bands over the years that I've been, you know, fortunate to work with or just see. Uh, Who just haven't made it, but there's been other ones who, you know, equally as great, and they just completely took off. So um, there's kind of almost no rhyme or reason to some of that. It's, It's just very strange. But I think that if you just continue to stay at it, you know, hopefully people will come around and find you.
1: Yeah. And how, what role does L.A. play in this? I'm curious. Since we're so close, what differentiates the San Diego indie music space from other cities, you think?
2: Um, I think it's just the, the sheer amount of people who, you know, are of a certain age demographic and are interested in, you know, actively finding new music. That's, you know, just in San Diego, the amount of the, you know, this kind of yeah, the population is just so much smaller in comparison to those big cities. So then you won't have as many people.
1: Yeah. I mean, in the big cities, do you think um, you get more exposure or do you think you sort of get drowned out?
2: Um, I think in the big cities, there's just, uh, you know, there's so many people who are just like actively looking for, um, you know, like for arts, you know, that's something that here in San Diego, it's just a lot more limited.
1: Yeah. I mean, do artists make enough money to build a life here in San Diego and stay?
2: That's like, that's always been a challenge even more so today. Uh, you know, it's expensive for everybody. So yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think that that's, that's something to keep an eye on moving forward, especially since it seems like rents are at an all time high. Yeah. Um, you know i hope you know artists here aren't looking to move but if they are i would fully understand what are some what
1: are some issues in the scene in the indie scene that we should talk about are there any challenges trying to make a living in this space
2: yeah i think the the challenge there is just just the awareness of the acts you know like what we do is we help bands like at the bottom level like move up from there Uh, And we're helping them, you know, put on shows and get their name out there to the audience who is familiar with our, you know, club. And then in turn, you know, trying to build, you know, an audience from the ground level. So the biggest challenge for us is to get the word out about us and then the bands to, you know, college kids, people who, you know, young people who are like interested in going out later at night and, so the biggest challenge is really just the amount of people, you know, like in the city who are into that sort of thing. And, you know, you mentioned young people coming out to more shows. How is the
1: audience changing, you think? I'm I'm sure social media is a big part of bringing awareness and bringing eyes to the music scene.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, social media is really the place where you're able to like market. Uh, you know, unfortunately, we lost uh, the city beat, which I felt was pretty crucial to, like, you know, the local music scene as far as them showcasing, you know, different artists every week. They really... uh, I felt like the CDB did a lot for San Diego music. And not having, like, a weekly beat like that has been difficult uh, for, you know, at least marketing and advertising.
1: Yeah. And here in San Diego, what do you think about Soda Bar's place in the San Diego music community?
2: I think we found... um, I think we found a really cool niche Um, at this point. I feel like we've established ourselves, you know, we're very similar to Casbah in the way of, you know, the type of bands that we book and um, also, you know, they are, you know, partners of ours. So um, I think that we've, we've done a good job at getting our name out there and creating a, a a fun experience for people.
1: Mm. So at this point, what's next for you and the soda bar?
2: Well, we're gonna uh, celebrate this Saturday, and then we are going to continue <laughs> to to do our thing, and you know, <laughs> into the future. Yeah, there's not really uh, as far as like you know expanding or anything. It's it's just kind of like a daily hustle of what we're doing now. All right. Well, do your thing then. Yeah. I've been speaking with Corey
1: Steer, booker and co-owner of Soda Bar. Their 15th anniversary concert will take place this Saturday, November 11th at 7 30 p.m. Tickets are $12. Corey, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Coming up, we'll hear from an author whose words paint a vivid picture of his life on a reservation and the culture of his Native American tribe.
3: We've got so many different cultures and now many of them are coming to the fore and we're understanding more and more about Native America and uh, that's important.
1: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition.
4: we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Native American author N. Scott Mamaday has celebrated the traditions of his Kiowa ancestry in his prose, poetry, essays, and playwriting for more than six decades. His 1968 novel, *House Maid of Dawn, made him the first indigenous author to win a Pulitzer Prize. It led to a breakthrough for Native American literature into mainstream recognition. I spoke with N. Scott Momaday earlier this year ahead of his appearance at Point Loma Nazarene University's Writer Symposium by the Sea in February. I started by asking about how his spiritual connection to the land impacted him and influenced his writing. Here's that conversation.
3: I grew up on Indian reservations in the Southwest and uh, that's become an important subject for me. So the influence has been very great.
1: An oral tradition and storytelling plays a major role in the preservation of Native culture. How did the stories you learned growing up influence you as a writer?
3: Gave me a, a a knowledge of oral tradition and storytelling, that is very important to me, and having incorporated that in my writing.
1: How did the oral storytelling tradition shape the way you write?
3: The Native American does not have writing, is storytelling and the oral tradition, and there are certain things that mark that tradition, such as repetition, description, things of that kind, which I incorporate in my writing. So that experience has been very valuable to me.
1: I wonder how you connect with your Kiowa ancestry through writing.
3: Well, as a matter of fact, I'm writing now about the prehistory of the Kiowa tribe. I'm dealing with their migration from the far north. And of course, there are no written records of that. So I'm having to uh, use the oral tradition as best I can and uh, use my imagination.
1: What's that process like?
3: Incorporating it into something that is concise it's it's a large story, and it's very difficult to boil it down into into uh, something manageable. But and, that, and that's the primary challenge, I think. And I'm I'm doing that, but it's it does take work, and it uh, comes slowly.
1: You were awarded the Pulitzer Prize for your 1968 novel House Maid of Dawn. What was it like to be the first Native American to win that award?
3: I didn't think of that at the time. The, the the prize came as a complete surprise to me. I wasn't expecting it. Didn't know I'd been nominated, and uh, so it, it it was a very important thing in my life. It changed my life in certain in certain ways. But it's uh, you know the the question is how did it how did I feel about it? Uh, how how did it come to me? I got a call from my editor at Harper and Row, as it was called at the time. And she said, Scott, are you sitting down? And I said, Yeah, I wasn't really, but I, I said I was. And she said, You've won the Pulitzer Prize. And I said, Yeah, for, tell me. I, I, come on. I, I'm busy, Fran. Don't bother me. <laughs> it took a while for it to sink in. And when it did, it was wonderful.
1: And your book, House Made of Dawn it's been described as the beginning of the Native American literary renaissance uh, did you intend for your work to open the door for other writers
3: no my intention was to write a book uh, and and to write it uh, not for anyone in particular but just for the sake of writing so I think Ken Lincoln who who uh, had a book published a book entitled Native American Renaissance gave me credit for starting something there. And, and I think it's true that that uh, there are two books that come to mind, Housemaid of Dawn and uh, and Dee Brown's uh, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, which came out about the same time. Those two books were very influential in, in, uh, in calling attention to Native American writing.
1: And why is it so important to call attention to Native American writing, you think?
3: Well, there's a wonderful story to be told, you know, the American Indian experience is uh really wonderful wonderfully dramatic and full of good things that is things that are appropriate to the telling and uh i think uh you know the, the native american has always had to work against a language barrier that is slowly being overcome so there are more and more now native young native american writers who are coming to into uh the spotlight. And that's a good thing. It'll continue to grow. And it'll be an important part of American literature, as it already is, I think, in some some ways, but it'll continue to grow.
1: In your book, Housemaid of Dawn, um, really deals with the many difficulties of growing up on a reservation. And I'm curious about what led you to become a writer in the first place, and what it was about your youth that made you want to capture those stories in writing.
3: Well, the simple answer to that is my mother was a writer. And she influenced me greatly. She, she. There were always books in the house, and she was always telling me stories and and uh, reading things to me. And 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 when I came of age, uh, suggesting things for me to read. So she was a major influence. And otherwise, it's uh, just something I I wanted to do from the time I was eight years old or something like that.
1: You've published both prose and poetry. Your your poetry contains these raw impressionistic descriptions of the native american experience while your prose blends memoir with folklore i wonder if you can talk about how you approach writing differently with these two genres
3: well poetry to me is the is the crown of literature it's 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 the best possible way to express yourself in language so i consider myself a poet i'd rather be a poet than a novelist or 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 anything else it happens that i I've dabbled in a lot of things. I've I've tried many forms. I've written uh, plays and travel literature, novels, and poetry, of course. So, uh, you know, it would be hard for me to to list them in in the order of importance, but I I do think that poetry is far and away the the most uh, important kind of writing for me.
1: And you've been writing for more than six decades. Uh, What do you think has changed the most about Native American identity and sovereignty in the United States since you began writing? I mean, has anything stayed the same?
3: No, nothing has stayed the same. It's changing constantly. And uh, as I say, uh, we're getting more and more Indian writers, Native American writers, and that's all to the good. We have... uh, now, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer the only Pulitzer Prize winner in, among a, Native Americans, and uh, things are happening, and it's a good thing.
1: And as you know, San Diego is home to a number of different tribes, uh, the experiences, traditions, and art of which are also uniquely different. Uh, do you feel that, that people in general are viewing the Native American experience in the United States as less of a monolith as when you began writing?
3: Yes, I do, I do, I think so. We're getting uh, voices from all over the place representing many different kinds of culture and, and experience, many different languages. So yes, diversity is crucial and uh, and uh, we're still finding that out. That's going to be an important part of the literature.
1: And why do you think it's important for people to understand that?
3: Because it's there. It's uh, we've got so many different cultures. And now many of them are coming to the fore and we're understanding more and more about Native America. And uh, that's important. There's an awful lot we don't know about, you know, early experiences before before contact, white Indian contact. But since then, we've made great strides. We've been given citizenship for one thing, just to mention the political aspect and uh, all kinds of different things have been coming to the fore and we are beginning to appreciate them to evaluate them and to understand where they where they belong in our general experience
1: do you think information and knowledge about culture history art do you think it's been suppressed
3: to some extent yes yes we we you know we're now plagued with fake news and 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 so on so it's it's it, it, censorship has been a, a problem that we have had to deal with for for a long time from the beginning
1: and so then do you look at literature as a vehicle to get around the censorship and suppression
3: i think it's a tool we haven't we haven't yet realized what what we can do with it how how uh, important it may be but certainly it is important, and I think it will become more and more so as we go along. I hope.
1: That was author N. Scott Mamaday speaking with me about his work and Native American literature. Coming up, Beth Accomando speaks with filmmaker H.P. Mendoza about his movie on grief and loss.
0: This movie is a grief release. We've all been packing it in, and it's been pent up, and we're just looking for excuses to let go.
1: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition.
4: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. The Coronado Island Film Festival kicked off last night and will run through Sunday. One of the closing night events is an encore screening of The Secret Art of Human Flight, a comedy drama about grief and loss. Audiences are lucky to have a second opportunity to see this film after its Southern California premiere at the San Diego Asian Film Festival last weekend. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando spoke with its director, H.P. Mendoza, about making the film. H.P.,
5: you have a new film called The Secret Art of Human Flight, and this deals with a young man who has just lost his wife and is trying to overcome his grief. You had a very successful screening of this film at the San Diego Asian Film Festival recently. And since then, it has gotten picked up by the Coronado Film Festival, and they will be screening it on Sunday. So San Diego audiences will have a second chance to see this. So give us a little background on how the film started.
0: Well, the script came to me through Richard Wong, who is my oldest collaborator. We worked on Colma the Musical together. Um, he wanted to run this script past me called The Secret Art of Human Flight with Grant Rosenmeier, who he had directed in Come As You Are. And I think he, he came clean and said, listen, I think this is kind of more your thing. And I said, well, what, what makes you think that? He says, it's very genre. And I read it, and I remember one of my th- first thoughts was, this is a genre, all right? Like, what, what even is the genre? Like, I, I can't really pin what the genre is. And I, I, uh, and I said, you know what? This is, this is pretty cool. What's your take? He says, dude, I don't have a take. What do you think? Do you think you'd want to direct this? And I'm always looking for outs. You know, when people like give me um, opportunities, I'm always looking for outs for two specific reasons. The first reason being that everyone's busy, right? Like you're, I, I'm always looking for free time. But the second is I'm also very insecure because I had never directed anything I hadn't written. I've only ever done cheapy independent films for queer people of color. And here I was you know, getting the chance to direct Grant Rosenmeier. And I said, okay, well, I have another out. This is a very quirky film about death and grief and loss. And I had just lost three friends in a row to COVID. This is smack dab in the middle of the pandemic. We were all losing people. I feel like these days, you know, while we're all in lockdown, and we're all dealing with all kinds of horrible things that you scroll past on your like, on, during your insomnia at night. I don't know, I just kind of want to lean into authenticity a little bit. Sort of the way that you had a bunch of people wanting some sincere Busby Berkeley numbers during the war. I think right now, I, I kind of want to make something a little more authentic to how I feel. Yeah, by the time I said yes, we had planned to live with each other. Me, Grant, and producer Tina Carboni were all living in that house that you see on set, and we were just figuring out, okay, so. How do we make this film? And we took off from there.
5: Now, this film deals with death and grief and trying to work through that grief. But it's a film that is remarkably funny also. So how do you tackle a film right after the pandemic, right after you yourself have been dealing with deaths of people you knew? How do you tackle a film like this and play with those tonal shifts and make people laugh so much at something that can also be so difficult to deal with.
0: Well, I think there's a difference between making a comedy about death and making a movie about death that has comedic elements. I thought, well, we're all going through something right now. But I, will, I never want to be the death guy. I don't want to walk into a room and say, hey, everybody, let's commiserate about how horrible the world is. It's, I will always attack everything with humor. See, so not, I'm not making fun of anything. I think I'm honoring real feelings. Um, but in that way that you know you're going to be okay when you're at a funeral and somebody cracks the first joke. I mean, the movie opens with a wake. It opens with a shiva. And within like three minutes, people are laughing. And I'm thinking, you know, if people laugh within those first three to five minutes, then we're doing something right. Tell me what you're feeling bad you feel bad i feel bad that's good it's good that you feel bad
5: and what was it like making this film coming out of the pandemic i mean it was hard to kind of get back into filmmaking and to kind of hit that groove again
0: I mean, it still is hard. (laughs) Uh, And maybe that's because we haven't really lifted out of a pandemic. And we were smack dab in the middle of it. So we had to have a COVID officer. We all stayed in the summer camp. You know, we took over all the cabins. So we had, that was our COVID bubble. The script kind of lent itself to that kind of filmmaking because for as aspirational as the film is, really, there are never really more than two people on screen at one time. And I think what's great about this is we were all kind of pouring our hearts into this. Lucy DeVito was pouring our heart into this. Paul Racey was pouring his heart into this. Uh, speaking of which, by the way, the day before Paul Racy showed up on set, we had just gotten everything into place and I got a call from my mom. And it was like the, the last thing I expected to hear my mom calls. She says, uh, HP, your, your dad died. And I thought to myself, boy, now I'm the death guy. You know, like I just, I, I don't want to make things heavy, but I wasn't the only one going through this. And then I also had to think, when this film comes out, we'll, we'll be showing it to people who also were going through something similar. So I part of my 30% rewrite was I wanted to have that monologue in there where the lead character says, I just don't know what's happening in the world anymore. That would be a line that could resonate with anybody no matter where they are right now.
5: Well, I think one of the things that came up after the screening at the Asian Film Festival was this idea of grief release.
0: It, it reminded me of those movies from the 90s that were all about flight. He had like Radio flyer and there were these stories about flight that really were not about flight they were about something else they were all about release so what's interesting is that Liz Racy, which who is Paul Racy's wife, came up with this idea or this phrase that this movie is grief release we've all been packing it in and it's been pent up and we're just looking for excuses to let go
5: well and since you brought him up, Paul Racy's character is very interesting. <laughs> he's kind of ill-defined and and is left for you to figure out whether he's a con man a a genuine mystic who knows but talk a little bit about his character
0: well i love that you said that his character is ill-defined right we kept designing him to be that way like with every day that passed
2: are you ready to leave this world behind are you tired of life as you know it
0: We need a Paul Racy type because Sound of Metal had just come out and he'd just been nominated. I said, we need like a Paul Racy type, someone who can, you know, who has that edge but could be a guru but could also not be, someone with gravitas who could pull off this and the humor. What you're about to do, what I've already done, defies everything we've been conditioned to believe is
2: possible. But once upon a time, the earth was flat. The sun orbited around us and CPR was done with a tobacco
0: enema. And one of the things I said is that I I, I would love for this movie to be as ambiguous as possible. I think, like, the obvious and... and easiest way to make like the ambiguous character is to make him someone that vacillates between being evil and benevolent and then finally there's that three-quarter mark in the movie where he becomes completely evil and then there's the redemption you know and that that's not not this movie but I thought to myself well it has to be a little bit deeper than that and the way you make it deeper is by removing words right I said let's make him say less and I, I got to rewrite some of like the guru speak to be a little more ridiculously Eastern. <laughs> you know, a lot of it kind of feels like stuff that you would, eat. you don't know if it came from a self-help book or a fortune cookie. And I love that Paul can just sell it. So with every day that passed, Paul would say like, I don't know if I would say it this way or I don't even know who I am right now. Who is this? Think of the book as a recipe, complete with ingredients. These tasks are your pots and pans, your, your oven. Yeah, I get it. Couldn't you just exercise naked to save time? Oh, I don't see why not. In the process of him figuring out who Mealworm was, we were also figuring out who Mealworm, or what Mealworm meant to Ben, the lead character. And I think that really did add to the sense of danger, right? Because I think the one thing that everybody thought was, this will be like Elf, or this will be like any of those movies where you have uh, like the straight man whose life is invaded by the wacky guy. And I'm thinking, yeah, he's wacky, but he should also feel threatening because this is a deathly movie.
5: One of the things that I really liked, and something I could really identify with, which is Ben's just lost his wife, and his wife's friend comes over, and her advice to him. You need to find a
2: thing, something, anything. It can be mundane, or it can be insane, but
5: you just need to find a thing. And see it through, okay?
0: Find a thing and see it through. Find a
5: thing and see it through.
0: And what's great is that wasn't actually the line that was written. Maggie Grace showed up on set and she knew everything that I'd been through and she knew things that had been happening to people on set because we were all talking about it so openly. And just being able to sit with Maggie Grace and talking about this, you know, know, she, she was talking about her losses and we were all talking about our losses and we were all talking about how, you know, the only way out is through yeah, the idea that the only way out is through is accepting that that there is another side to this, right? So in the meantime, do something else. And that's when I think just between me, Maggie Grace, and Grant – We were just sitting there on the porch and trying to figure out exactly what should that last line of that scene be. Because remember, it's the last line of the scene, so that's how you remember it. And it ended up becoming pick a thing and see it through. Sometimes these things that may seem cliche end up resonating in a viewer's mind maybe decades later, right? Like if if you are too cool for school, you might watch that scene and say like, oh, yeah, sure, whatever. That's probably out of some self-help book. You know, Oprah probably said that. But when you get there, when you experience your loss and you do pick that thing and you see it through, hopefully it'll resonate.
5: This film also has a San Diego connection in the sense of how you got some funding for this.
0: Yeah, in and, and more ways than one, more, or more people than one. The main person who, whose presence we were celebrating at the San Diego Asian Film Festival was Steve Alexander, who lives in Coronado. And the other person was Steve Wegner, who's a producer on the film, who's from San Diego. So it was really nice to have him be on stage and address like his community who was all there. That was that, that was really nice because Steve Alexander is somebody who always wanted to make a film. You know, one thing he said was as much as he liked the magic of movies, he knew that he had the resources to make it. So that way he can just give somebody a top hat, a magic wand and a rabbit. Could they make magic? Not necessarily. And he knew he couldn't. He knew he couldn't either. So this was his in with his resources to get that hat and that wand and that rabbit, he made it happen. You know, he, 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 and he, and he showed up on set. So yeah, we're super grateful that Steve Alexander was one of the people who got to bring this movie to life.
5: And you mentioned that you guys moved into a house to shoot. What was that like to kind of be living on your set?
0: Uh, living on set. This is, this is weird because I feel like I don't know if it's, any different from what I'm used to. Like the first film I directed, Fruit Fly, was like, I <laughs> that entire film takes place in three bars, a nightclub, a smoking patio, and an apartment. And all of those locations were my apartment. <laughs> so, and, and it's where I live now. And everything I've done has been in locations that I've known. The difference now was... It was a location, so I think the innovative thing for the team was, hey, isn't that cool that we get to move into this location beforehand? And I'm thinking, yeah, the only difference is that like we're paying rent for this now, as opposed to this being my actual apartment. So it's it it, it didn't feel any different from like previous films I had done. It's just you know there's just you know it, we're still raising money, there's just like ten times more of it. <laughs> uh, like this movie could have funded all of my films twice. So all these things felt like innovations of the day, but really it was just. Ah, it was textbook guerrilla filmmaking.
5: And how would you describe this film to people? Because you mentioned the idea of genre, but it's a film that kind of crosses genres, mixes genre, genre bends, whatever you want to call it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right. Ah uh, yeah. I mean, oh boy, what do we say? What do we say? Because we, you know, we we do have to have an answer. Uh, like the easy thing that we have been saying is, oh, it's a comedy comedy drama fantasy and after a while when people would say like you know is this a horror film is this a is this a comedy what what is this the answer was just yes <laughs> whatever you think it is in the moment it's that because the truth is if you just say it's a comedy drama that that's that's fitting but there are some supernatural elements to it and there are some really trippy things to it and i think instead of saying that this is a genre film i like to saying that it's a comedy drama because Uh, there are some people who probably would never watch a genre film that will get introduced to elements like that for the first time.
5: It is hard to find adjectives to describe your film because it, it feels unique. But there's also something that comedy doesn't quite cover, which is this sense of, like, whimsy. There's something that's indescribable and just kind of surprising also, like unexpected turns.
0: It's true because The Secret Art of Human Flight, I don't think it's a laugh-out-loud comedy. I think it's funny. Yeah, the whimsy that makes people chuckle or laugh isn't necessarily comedic, right? Like, I think a lot of this is—it's a kind of unexpected lightness that you wouldn't expect to feel amongst all of that death. So, yeah, I think—yeah, uh, thank you for that. I'm going to take that from you. And I'll I'll, add, I'll attribute it to you. But I, I, think, uh, I, I think you kind of gave me the language to talk about that now. <laughs>
5: well, and it also has— And it also has a real sweetness to it because there's a sadness to it. It's like this aching sweetness where you really feel you like these characters so much and there's a real appeal to them. Um, But yet you feel their pain, too.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know what's funny, that sweetness that you're talking about? I think that's something I've always been trying to imbue into all of my films ever since Cold the Musical. Because when I did Cold the Musical in 2006, I was working with Rich Wong, who's like one of my oldest friends. And we went to college together. And one thing we always talked about was how irony can be tiresome. And the one thing that I always wanted to make sure is that for as much irony as there was in Coleman the Musical, I wanted to make sure there was as much sincerity, too. Someone accused me of being the kind of writer who just will do anything to make you feel good. I'm like, is that so bad? Like, is that so bad? Then don't watch my movie if you want to feel bad. And I, I, I feel like The Secret Art of Human flight, flight already had that baked in. And so what I did was because I gave all the actors, like, free reign to play with lines. Like, I would always ask each actor, I'm like, does that feel right coming out of your mouth? And often they say, it does to an extent. Can I, can I tweak it a bit? And like, every actor got a chance to tweak it to what they needed to make it feel authentic to who they are. And I thought that the only lens I wanted to give them was, that, you know, I just want to make sure that there's, a, there's an authentic sweetness to the way people treat each other. Because now I feel like this neighborhood, this story lends itself to it.
5: All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about The Secret Art of Human Flight.
0: Thank you for
1: having me on. That was Beth Accomando speaking with filmmaker H.P. Mendoza. His film, The Secret Art of Human Flight, will screen Sunday as part of the Coronado Island Film Festival. We want to thank you for listening and giving us your feedback. Here's what one listener had to say about our show earlier this week on the historical trauma behind the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Quote, This discussion is the best I've heard or read so far on the current war. They went on to thank the two professors we interviewed for, quote, conducting themselves with restraint and courtesy for candidly detailing the Jewish and Palestinian histories, viewpoints and traumas while still listening compassionately to each other, end quote. Thanks for your feedback and for listening. Our phone lines are always open. Give us a call, 619-452-0228. Leave a message or you can email us at midday at KPBS.org. We'd love to share your ideas here on the show. The Roundtable is here tomorrow at noon, and you'll hear from military reporters on veterans' issues. We're really lucky in this area here because there's so much of a military military influence kind of in the fabric of our community. That's tomorrow at noon. Don't forget to watch Evening Edition tonight at 5. And you can always find the Midday Edition podcast on all platforms. Thanks to the team who makes this show happen every day. Producers, Juliana Domingo, Brooke Ruth, Andrew Bracken, Laura McCaffrey, and Ariana Clay. Contributors, Beth Agamondo and Julia Dixon-Evans. And technical producer, Rebecca Chacone. The music you're hearing is from San Diego's own Surefire Soul Ensemble. I'm your host, Jade Hindman. Thanks to all of the veterans for your service. Have a great weekend.